licensed betting shops were allowed in England for the first time. And one opened just up the road from Old Trafford. And after our training was finished every day, myself and Barry Fry and a fellow called George Best, God rest him, we used to wander up to the betting shop. And uh, all of us acquired a bad habit at that time. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme, what's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! After another strange week of uncertainty around where we are going with COVID-19, there has never been a better time for a conversation with writer, journalist and podcaster Eamon Dunphy. When you're away from home or even still in the country, it's hard to find a reliable resource or just an honest, informed opinion on what the hell is happening in Ireland. His podcast, The Stand, has been that resource for me for years. On Tuesday, June 22nd, Eamon agreed to talk to me about whether we should be optimistic about the future for Ireland, whether criticism of this government's handling the pandemic is warranted at all, and what hope there is for the Irish abroad who want to return home. Now, some of the answers he gave me really, really surprised me. To hear the second half of our conversation where we get to talk about football, football punditry, including Roy, what he knew but couldn't say about John Delaney, horse racing and lots, lots more. Simply head to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad and become a member today. Things changed dramatically for us all when this pandemic struck, myself included. You can vote for the survival of the things you enjoy by supporting us on Patreon. Members get access to hundreds of interviews with the greatest Irish people ever to have left our country and a few who stayed. Mini-series such as our true crime podcast uh, about the greatest miscarriages of justice in the history of the state and lots, lots more. All for the price of a coffee every month. Buy us a cup of coffee over at patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. Eamon Dunphy, it's an absolute pleasure to have you back on the Irishman Abroad at a very different time to when we last spoke. Uh, I guess when you're speaking here on our podcast, you are talking to an awful lot of Irish people abroad who, despite tuning into probably everything they can, still feel a huge disconnect from home. Part of the reason they listen to the show is to get that little taste. But never before has it felt like we need an understanding of what the hell is happening back there. What's your sense of how things have been handled and where we're at right now with everything in Ireland? Well, I think um, you have to allow the government and the people in the public health uh, people, Neffet, for example, the fact that nobody has had to face uh, a global pandemic 
before. So all the responses are really on the run and there are no precedents. So mistakes have been made about when to close down society, when to reopen society. And just this morning, there's breaking news now, which is shocking, really. The the Indian variant uh, is responsible for 20% of the new cases in Ireland. In Britain now, it's 90-something percent. This is a more virulent variant. It's up to 50-60% more virulent, which means it spreads faster. It also uh, makes people sicker. So just as we speak, we are, and the cabinet is meeting today, as it does on the Tuesday, and the news is very bad. We have planned to reopen more uh, facilities and hospitality on July 5th. It doesn't look now as if that's going to be possible. So the government has a, a terrible dilemma. People in hospitality, in travel, in all these now areas, they need a break. They need to get back to business. People need to secure their jobs. Uh, and people need to secure their businesses. Yet, it looks like that may have to be postponed again. Now, we haven't handled it as bad uh, as England, for example, and Britain. Uh, England particularly, because uh, Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland has been more rigorous. But the this Indian variant really arrived in England through travel and allowing travel from India, uh, which Boris Johnson refused to put on the red list because he wanted to go to India to meet their leader, Modi, and strike a trade deal. So he delayed for two weeks. And in that two weeks, Tens of thousands of Indian people traveled. Many of them came to Britain, and Britain is now in deep trouble, having tried to reopen too soon and having been badly led by somebody, a politician really, who doesn't really have a grip on what's required. Um, I wouldn't be so hard on our own government because we have an open border with the north of Ireland, and people have been able to travel here from Britain. But it looks like, as we speak, we're in trouble again. It must have an impact on morale back home. I mean, I can sense it in your own podcast as you, as you put them out, the brilliant stand. If people aren't subscribed to that, they really should. That Ireland is beaten and battered at the end of this. Would I be right in saying that? Well, we've had a terrible traumatic experience for the health service it's meant you know, people are tired they're working too hard they have had to deal with something that's quite unprecedented the other big problem is that other diseases uh, cardiac cancers and cases like that have had to go on hold so there are even longer waiting lists so the health service is in deep trouble. And if we were to get now uh, a new surge uh, of this variant, it will break people, I think. And there was a feeling for the last few weeks of optimism. People were out and about. Mm -hmm. They were eating in the open air. There was a good mood last week. And I hope that we were through this. But... At that stage, the Indian variant explained only 5% of cases. It's now 20% and, and rising. So 
as I speak, we're in a terrible position, but we're not sure how terrible. Mm. There are people who have businesses, people who have jobs in the hospitality and the travel areas in particular, who are desperate to get back to work. And the government is listening to public health advice. And yesterday, the chief medical officer said he is very concerned about this new variant. At the same time, they have people who want to reopen their businesses and try to get back to some form of normality. And that looked tantalizingly close until really this morning. It's a very strange time to say the very least. Uh, And having lived here in the UK throughout the whole thing and watched the public messaging change and the spin change, like uh, some of the things you've said there about Boris Johnson simply aren't being said here because there's such a, a clear management of what's being said, how it's being said, and what's the message we need people to get this week. The big thing that they keep pushing on is that we need people to get this vaccine, to get it into them, to convince people that it's still very serious, that even with our Delta variant numbers here as high as they are, there's still this push of people that are just like, well, you know, we've got to get on, we've got to move on now and accept that there is now this, that Delta variant is coronavirus and that when they say to us, we're going to have to move on with our lives and know that this is a thing that we're vaccinated against each winter, that the Delta variant may be that variant that we refer to from that point forward. How do you feel about the that, I won't call them a brigade, but that collection of people in Ireland who are of that mind that enough's enough, this is where we yeah. are, this is what we have, get vaccinated if you feel like it, if you don't, move on with your life and take your chances. Well, we haven't politicised it the way it's been politicised in Britain. Here, there is a minority who are arguing that case. In Britain, it's much more substantial, the number, the percentage of people, uh, and also they're in positions of power. I mean, some members of the cabinet, uh, most members, it seems, of the Tory party who are in power, believe that we just got to crack on. We can't Mm -hmm. put our lives on hold. We have to live with the virus. The problem is that living with the virus has unknown consequences. Not so many people are dying now because the people in the vulnerable groups, age groups, have been fully vaccinated and two shots of most of the vaccines are what you need. So people aren't dying. There are not so many people in ICU, but we don't know the consequences, for example, of long COVID. And there there are consequences. That's not really understood fully yet. And I think the lobby for opening up and living with the virus has to be confronted by strong leadership, but that's not easy. And unfortunately, in the United States, you see the same thing. Look at the way Trump uh, ignored this. Look at Brazil and Bolsonaro, where yesterday we learned that 500,000 people have died. And he's no intention of changing his view, and that is let it rip. Uh, So... It's complicated. And of course, the more it rips, the more variants there will be. This Delta Indian variant is not the last variant. And Mm. the more it circulates in your society, the virus, the more it will mutate and the more difficult it is 
to deal with. So we're in trouble because there are so many voices and there's so much ignorance. Uh, and there's a kind of reluctance to listen to the more rigorous epidemiologists and scientists who see the dangers, who tell us about the dangers and are then condemned. And we've had that on the Stand and Rome podcast. We have, we've had good contributors from the scientific and public health community, but the social media backlash has been, to put it bluntly, nasty and difficult um, for people. It's difficult for uh, scientists and public health experts to, to be candid. So they're being drowned out in a lot of cases by a push for optimism, positivity, or, uh, you know, kind of willing it into existence. Boosterism, uh, but Boris is known for, isn't he? Yeah, that's that's the one. And that's the word. You uh, yourself coming to this where you are as an older man and me with a, a wife who's vulnerable. I'm yeah. sure you feel this sense that I wish I could. I could communicate with people that, you know, even for somebody like my wife who's fully vaccinated, that isn't a guarantee. That doesn't actually mean 100% she can't catch this. And the decision yes. by those people to refuse it, uh, even with, yes. with no real, with no other argument in some cases other than no thanks, not for me. Uh, and I'm yep. not judging them all as that, but there are those that are just digging their toes in the sand to be contrarians in some cases that I feel like they don't understand for someone like me with a wife like mine or someone like yourself who's a bit older and yep. is aware that I can get the vaccine, but I'm not out of the woods yet. No, I wouldn't be. I have emphysemia. And if I got it, regardless of uh, the fact that I've had two shots of the Pfizer vaccine, I'd be in trouble. I think probably, and it's only probable, uh, we're going to have to live with this in the long term as we do with seasonal flu. It looks like, if you look right across the globe now, that it's becoming endemic in societies. And I don't know that it can ever be zero COVID. And in that case, it will keep coming back in different forms. We may have to have booster shots in the winter, and from time to time. So whilst politicians have, and particularly Boris Johnson, has um, an interest in lifting morale uh, and making promises, yesterday was supposed to be Freedom Day, and that mm. decided about five or six weeks ago. You cannot say five or six weeks out of any given date that it's going to be safe to open up because the facts change. And we are just seeing it with the Delta variant how the virus can change, and the virus, when it's changing, is deadly. And at the moment, the vaccines are holding up, but there may well be a strain down the line that the vaccines are not uh, protection against. So it, it's, a, it's a world, it's an international crisis, but it's been dealt with piecemeal in every country uh, differently. I might have to respectfully disagree with you on that one, Eamon, because mm -hmm. living in this here and seeing my friends back home and understanding that June 21st was meant to be Freedom Day and the understanding here was all going well. The sense was 
if we do our best, if we pull together, and assuming there isn't another variant, all these words were said that actually having that plan and having some sort of hope on the horizon, as pipe dreamy as it might have been, I felt it buoyed the people. Yes, and, it, it, and it, not it having is. that in Ireland, though. Do you? Do you? Well, do you, the Irish ex- government has been better in some ways than many others in Europe. Although you could, it's easy to be critical of them. Say reopening, so we'd have a normal Christmas. Uh, that was really a mistake, uh, and we paid a heavy price in January. But you have to forgive some mistakes. And we have we live in a democracy. It might be better dealing with this to live in a society where the government can lay down the law and enforce it. Mm. So, for example, the people you quoted before who don't want the vaccine, who think if you take it, you'll be controlled by the government. They're on the far fringes of things. But there are people who are, you know, a vaccine skeptic. Maybe you'd reach a situation where well, can you, in a free society, make people take the vaccine? I don't think you can, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm speaking to you as well. And I do want to talk about this a bit because a lot of Irish people abroad move away with a plan to come home. Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, you've experienced this yourself in your time been, in yeah. England. And, you know, Dylan Moran used to do a great joke about it, that Irish people are always saving up to go home and they can never understand why they why they can't get there. Yeah. But there's there's a there's a certain amount of the people that I speak to that really wonder whether now is a good time or how close they are to getting to a good time to move back to Ireland. What would you say to those people? Well, I would say if you've had your, if you're fully vaccinated, then uh, you should be able to come home. And if you're not, then get the vaccine and come home. The danger is not people who are fully vaccinated. Uh, the danger is in, in last summer, for example, in, in Ireland, when we had it down in early July to three cases. Uh, new cases a day. We thought we almost had it beaten. Lots of people then went to Spain on holiday, thousands, and they brought it back. And we had a surge then in the autumn, which was terrible. Now, I think the consequences of making decisions at the wrong time is part, it's a big part of the problem. And setting these dates uh, as say yesterday was to be Freedom Day in Britain, setting these dates four or five weeks out are uh, is not a good idea. You'd be driven by the data rather than the date. Yeah, and I guess my question also relates to you know relocating. Full stop. That you know it's nearly outside of COVID, even though you can't talk of anything outside of COVID. Uh, I guess our plan was always to come back for my son to go to secondary school in Ireland, because I believe that the secondary school education in Ireland is the best in the world, certainly better than what he might get over here. I wonder, though, about the timing, and and this is my question to you, that if you were advising someone who's keen to relocate back to Ireland as an immigrant, would you think that 
the country is in a good place for somebody to do that? And if not, what needs to happen for you to think that? Well, you'd need accommodation. <laughs> we have no accommodation for the people who are here. Uh, we have a terrible housing crisis. We have a, a terrible uh, and worsening public health crisis. So I don't think, unless you have means, you can possibly come back to Ireland now. We don't know what the um, unemployment rate will be when we get clear of this or clearer, but that's not going to be good either. Um, so it's not a good idea in the middle of this global pandemic to be making fundamental life decisions that you have to live with afterwards. Uh, I, I wouldn't, if I was abroad, come back myself unless I had enough money to buy a house and unless I was sure I could get my children into a school and indeed unless I had private health insurance because the waiting lists for hospitals now for basic preventative medicine like, for example, colonoscopies, uh, checks for cancers, cardiac problems, um, hip operations, all of these things. The, 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 because COVID, COVID has really preoccupied us and put such stress on the health service, all of those other conditions are now very difficult to access treatment, very, very difficult. And our health service is under-resourced anyway in terms of nurses and doctors. So uh, this is not a good time to be thinking about coming home, in my view. Yeah, I read a piece that you you had in the paper about not getting to see your grandchildren and your children uh, in January. Uh, I wondered what the situation is now for you and, you know, the toll that that's taken uh, on you and your family. Well, we I saw my son on Sunday for the first time for a very long time, but he's an adult uh, and he's had one shot. Uh, my grandchildren... It's not possible, really, uh, to to do that. In particular, that we have um, one uh, member of our family uh, who is very susceptible to this because of other medical conditions. So it hasn't been easy for anybody who can't see their family, uh, and I'm no different from that. But the most important thing, I suppose, is knowing you speak every day, knowing that they're well and coping with this. Which, in my case, fortunately. They are. There's bound to be a political reaction to what we're experiencing. There has to be a movement from the parties, from their positioning prior to this, to their positioning after this. I mean, that would be basic uh, political science 101. Do, do you have any hope for that taking place? Like, what do you see taking place with Irish political parties off the back of this? Well, Leo Bradker, who's the leader of Fine Gael and the Tonish at the moment, it was their Ordesh. They had a virtual Ordesh on Zoom at the weekend, and he made a very interesting speech in which he said things that you'd never expect Leo Bradker or any other Fine Gael leader, apart from Gareth Fitzgerald, to ever say. Uh, he talked about resourcing the health service, and when this, when and if this pandemic ends, we should keep the resources we. Uh, the boost in resources we gave to health said we should leave it. Uh, he talked about building 40,000 houses a year. He talked about a living wage. He talked about 
the pension crisis and what needs to be done. It was almost as if he had, you know, accepting the premise of your question, which I think is, is right, we can't go back to where we were politically. He was making a center-left, almost, argument uh, for what we need to do. Now, there is a by-election due in Dublin Bay South in a couple of weeks, so he may have had that in mind. Uh, but I, I don't want to be too cynical about it. I think most political leaders would believe that the value of a proper health service the value of a just and fair society will be more appreciated for the experience we've just had because the people who have served their public interest best are the nurses, doctors, and ward orderlies, bus drivers, people working in supermarkets who are wearing masks all day uh, and they're in a danger zone. So the sort of people that we take for granted as a society, and we all do, we won't be so keen to take them for granted again, I hope. And that's down to political leadership, and it's down to rewarding people who are contributing to our well-being as a community, rather than rewarding people, as we very often do, who make no contribution at all, in fact, to exploit our society for financial gain. Do you buy it when he stands well, up and says these things? Like it has to be, it's, it's, has it, to be I mean, you'd have to be mad to believe everything or anything that politicians say. And it's one of my failings as a person that I'm not sufficiently skeptical. I tend to <laughs> believe these speeches and think they, surely they wouldn't lie about that. But I'm afraid. I've learned, I've learned to take what politicians say with a pinch of salt. Oddly enough, although I'm by no means on the right of the political spectrum, I have some regard for Bradker. He's a straight talker very often. Sometimes he says things people find uncomfortable to hear. But uh, I kind of have a, a grudging admiration for him. He said last week he wanted United Ireland. Now, I'm, I'm not dreaming of United Ireland, but it was a very surprising thing to say, and he, he said he expected to see it in his lifetime. Yeah, I mean, there, there isn't a person... It's quite a provocative yeah, uh, statement, yeah. although he's only in his 40s, so he's got 50 years maybe uh, <laughs> to see things, <laughs> that, that particular ambition, shall we say, realised. But uh, the way things are in the North... And the I fact mean, that Sinn Féin are likely to lead the next yeah. government in the Republic uh, means you might see it a lot quicker. But uh, that's dangerous territory. You mentioned a straight talker and sometimes says things that people don't necessarily want to hear. It, it definitely has been pinpointed as the shift in dialogue, especially around football punditry and analysis of the game in the corridors of RTE, the move away from what seemed to me to be well-articulated, honest opinion based on experience, that might be an uncomfortable truth, that there was a decision in there that that's not actually what we need on our panels. Was that decision, and you tell me if I'm wrong on that decision, but if, that, if I am right, was that actually articulated to you, to your face? 
Not, not in so many words. I mean, they don't articulate things to your face. I would say that, um, and I'm generalizing now, there are certain things you need to be an analyst on anything, whether it's football or politics or any of the sciences, the public health. There's certain things you need. One, you need the knowledge to, uh, to be an analyst, and not everybody has that. The second thing you need is the ability to express yourself fluently and to convey to people who are listening or reading, if it's a newspaper, to convey to them uh, what you know and what you want to say. So experience, knowledge of the subject, and the ability to express yourself. Um, and, of course, when you're looking at football matches or whatever, very often the hype and the consensus that's formed is wrong. Um, so you need to confront consensus thinking and what you might call groupthink, uh, which sets in, particularly when Ireland are playing in anything. You have to just call it as you see it. And in order to do that, you have to have knowledge and you have to be able to express yourself. Um, and they're the particular qualities that you require. Now, whether um, that applies, I mean, it's not just RTEs, analysts, the BBC, ITV, um, ITV have the dream team, I think, of Roy Keane and somebody else, I can't remember, Gary Neville, I think, or whoever mm. it is. Sky and uh, BT Sport don't have uh, the Euros, but none of them are great, to be honest. The people who run television and indeed who run media, they tend to think of football people or practitioners of rugby players as dumb. And therefore, they don't mind hiring them, but they don't want them rocking any boats mm. because they're dummies, really. You, you really believe that? Oh, absolutely, I do, yeah. So there you have it, a little taster of my conversation with Eamon Dunphy. The second half is everything you would expect. Please do subscribe to his podcast, The Stand. It's available on all platforms. What a gent Eamon is. Big thanks to him and to his team over there at The Stand who arranged this and recorded everything impeccably. Sound quality. Oh, unbelievably good. <laughs> Recording podcasts remotely has never been so good at this time. Big thanks to Brian Connolly for his production on the show, John Marr for his extra research, Tina and Mikey for making it all possible, and to our patrons over on Patreon, which I'm sure you're going to become one today. As I said, things changed dramatically for us when this pandemic hit. We quadrupled our output to four episodes a week. You can get hundreds of hours of great listening for to, for you across this summer. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad and enjoy it all today.